Have you ever thought about the people that you live with or interact with on a daily basis? What makes them tick? What's their background? What's their history? Why do they do the things that they do? I think about this all the time as part of my job as a criminal defence solicitor. In this particular episode, I want you to think about this as you're listening to it. For every person that's been wrongfully convicted, there is someone or people walking around who have got away with the crime. It could be someone you know. It could be someone you interact with on a daily basis, or someone you've met randomly at a train station or on a bus stop. Who knows? But this happens when someone is wrongfully convicted. Someone or people are walking around getting away with it. In this particular episode, we feature the case of Stephen Downing. And for those of you who don't know what happened to him, it is one of the worst examples of a miscarriage of justice case. It is a tragic example of what can happen when things go really badly wrong. Stephen, at the time, was aged 17 and of good character, and he had learning difficulties. And he was wrongfully convicted of the murder of Wendy Sewell, who was brutally attacked in the Bakewell Cemetery in September 1973. It became known as the Bakewell murder case. Stephen was working there on that day, and at one stage, he was questioned without being cautioned, not having access to an appropriate adult or a solicitor, in a very oppressive manner. He was convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment and spent over 27 years, yes, 27 years, in prison for a crime he didn't commit. In this episode, we talked to Don Hale. Don is an investigative journalist who spent years battling to free Stephen. He has won more prestigious awards than any other UK journalist and was nominated for an OBE by Tony Blair for his campaign journalism. Some of the content of this episode is very distressing. Remember, but as I said, Stephen didn't commit this crime. So someone or some people are walking around as we speak or potentially walking around as we speak and they think they've got away with this murder. Thank you for joining me on this podcast. I wondered if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, yeah, well, I started off, I, I studied law and business studies at college. So I've always had a, a sort of an interest in it. And in the end, I ended up playing football. And I trained as a journalist as a sort of a second career. Uh, and I worked with the BBC at um, Radio Manchester and started covering sports and human interest and main features and that. And it's through that I sort of got involved then with the local newspapers, writing for the Manchester Evening News. Eventually sort of left the radio to become editor of the Berry Messenger, which is my local you know, town newspaper as such. And then eventually I was transferred to the Matlock Mercury in Derbyshire, which the, the group I was with, the Johnson Press, had just bought that. And they wanted somebody to go with fresh ideas, a bit of an old-fashioned newspaper, and they wanted to sort of modernise it and, and put some ideas together. At some point, I know you became involved in the Stephen Downing case, but before we get to that, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what happened to Wendy Saul. Yes, well, it's a real tragic case, this. I mean, this happened in September 1973, and Wendy Saul was found well, brutally... Uh, attacked in Bakewell Cemetery. She was found half naked and she'd been hit several times about the head with a pickaxe handle. She was a 32-year-old housewife and a clerk in the Forestry Commission in Bakewell. What I found out during the course of my investigation, though, it, it wasn't a particularly happy marriage she was involved with. It wasn't a success. And consequently, she had no associations or affairs with local men. And she even had a child out of wedlock with one particular boyfriend. And I found out that later on, a lot of this sort of the background to Wendy and what have you, was sort of kept away from the jury and kept away from the court and it portrayed a slightly different image of the victim. The unfortunate part about it is that the tabloids, when they picked up on some of my investigations, called her the, the tag of the Bakewell Tart, which was completely untrue. She was, by all accounts, a very lovely young woman. She's a very popular person throughout the community and um, she just suffered from this unhappy marriage, really. And over a period of uh, several years, she sought solace in the company of one to other men. So that was sort of, you know, the background to it. Now, Stephen, he came into this equation because he actually worked in the cemetery where the uh, victim was found. And he saw Wendy walking around the cemetery shortly before he went for his lunch. He'd seen her before. He didn't think anything particular about it. Left to get his lunch. And on the way back after his lunch, he then heard a shout or 
he saw some movement on one of the paths in the cemetery and saw Wendy after she'd just been attacked and she was in a, a half a state, of, a state of undress and she'd been badly injured. So he immediately dashed to, to find help. So this is sort of the background to what I had to work on originally. Went to find help and you, you ran to the, the lodge first to try and get help to see if they're on the telephone. In those days, not everybody was on the telephone, of course. And the lodge man said, no, he wasn't on the phone, but some other workmen had come in, go to them and get help and, and see what you can do for the victim. So they all ran across to where they, Stephen had said that he'd found the victim. And she actually moved about 30 or 40 yards to another spot. And they saw this young woman sort of tottering about. And one or two went towards her. And the foreman shouted, leave her. And they all sort of stood back. And she fell over and actually you know, fell really badly and hit her head on a gravestone. And I think that's what caused the maximum damage. But when they then went to phone for the police, they had to go to a phone box, which is about 200 metres away. And they only phoned, they only asked for the police. So the police came. They thought probably Wendy was dead, she was unconscious. And they started asking questions. And Stephen explained that he'd how he'd found and what have you. And he got some potential blood staining on him because he'd, he'd, he'd gone to help the, the victim. And she'd actually shaken her head and, and sat up as he went to her. And so they're busy asking questions. Then they saw the victim gurgle and start making noises and, and move. And it was that stage then that he then phoned for an ambulance. So about 20 minutes have been wasted in terms of, you know, from finding the victim to getting the police and then getting an ambulance. And again, this was vital with somebody who was, who was seriously ill. So... At some point, the ambulance arrives and they take her to the hospital. And my understanding is that she also violently moved whilst in the ambulance. Well, that's right. Yeah. I mean, she was absolutely, she was covered in blood. She, and the ambulance man, I mean, they, once they put her in the ambulance, she's, she sort of revived a little bit. And she was shouting and wrestling and trying to fight people off. But she didn't really know what she was doing, what she was saying. And the ambulance man, in his own evidence, said that he was absolutely covered in blood himself. His uniform, his top of his uniform, was covered in blood from trying to help the woman. And the policeman had, this, had a similar problem. So it shows the extent of the blood staining, you know, in terms of thrashing about and trying to almost protect herself, not knowing who these people were and that they were trying to help her. And he said afterwards that it had to burn his uniform because it was that badly soaked in blood. And, and Stephen was taken to the police station, but he wasn't cautioned, was he, at that stage, that initial stage? No. Well, obviously the policeman had, had, had radioed back uh, to his car and the detectives came up with other police officers. And he was uh, then quizzed as such just very briefly in the cemetery as the fact that he'd found her and just explained what was what. And this was about the time when Wendy was just then being carted off in the ambulance to the hospital and he was asked then to uh, just go to give an explanation of what was happening, give a statement at the police station. So he went voluntarily, wasn't told he was a potential suspect or anything, went voluntarily. I mean, he was only 17, a very young 17. I mean, he had, you know, the court documents confirm he had uh, it described most with learning difficulties. But in those days, they called it, they said he was backward and he had the reading age of an 11 year old. So and this was really one of his first jobs uh, from leaving school. So he wasn't really aware of what was going on. And like, like it was uh, advised, just come to the police station, just you know, go through uh, and explain what happened, how did he find her, et cetera. You're not, you know, he wasn't told he was, he was a potential suspect. He wasn't cautioned. And he went quite willingly to just explain, as we said, what, what happened. So he was in the police station, and my understanding is he was in there for a considerable period of time, where in fact he was really being interrogated by the police. Well, that's right. Yeah, he was taken upstairs into a, a you know, private room, and and was quizzed by by what we know of three, two two detectives and a, and a senior police officer. And again, not told anything more. Just look, you're helping with inquiries. That was all at that stage. But he was actually kept there for about eight hours. He wasn't allowed anything to eat or drink. He wasn't allowed access to his parents, who went down several times to see what had happened to him. And, and bearing in mind, his frame of mind at the time, he, he was able really to sort of explain matters himself, apart from, you know, the, just the basic things. And he was getting quite agitated, quite worried. And even, the, you know, the police documents at the time say 
but he was actually, you know, he was shaken to keep him awake. He was getting so tired and hungry. He got an injury to his back as well. He was in a lot of pain with that. And he was forced to sit in a very hard upright chair for the, all this period of time. And so, you know, he was put under an awful lot of stress. And there was one of the policemen there that was basically got history with him and Stephen from before, because there was a minor incident in some years before where a woman was basically pushed and shoved by a number of boys that were sort of running past, just as a bit of a prank, really. And lots of boys were rounded up uh, from the ATC, of which Stephen was a member at the time, and were quizzed as to who was responsible. And this police officer always believed that Stephen was responsible for it. And, you know, throughout several years beforehand, he'd always sort of said, oh, you know, he was the lad that was pushed this woman, etc. And it turned out that he, he wasn't even there on that night at the ATC club. He, and there was an actual photograph in the local paper of Stephen receiving a, a prize of a, some, for, he made some sort of rocket, I think it was, in the physics uh, class. And he was actually being presented with a prize on the same day at about the same time as this incident happened. So quite obviously, it couldn't possibly have been Stephen. And three uh, boys were questioned. And in, in the end, one boy did admit that because he dropped his from the ATC. And that was later found to be belong to this particular boy. And so, you know, this officer kept this sort of grudge and false information for all these years and kept sort of telling people, oh, yeah, we knew something was happening because he was involved with an incident a few years before, which was totally uh, wrong. And he was interviewed, like you said, for a lengthy period of time. And my understanding from looking at information to do with this case is that the officers also were saying things to him like he would be questioned throughout the night. Oh, yeah. He was told that uh, he wouldn't be allowed to, to see his parents. He couldn't do anything. He couldn't, you know, their attitude was, look, just admit that you've attacked this woman and then you can go home. You'll be home in half an hour type thing. And, you know, if the, obviously they didn't know how badly Wendy was injured at the time. They thought that basically they were telling Stephen that she'd be okay tomorrow. If it wasn't you, what we can do is to, you know, Wendy will, will say it wasn't you and we can clear it all up. But they were pushing and pushing all the time and just sort of saying, look, just admit it for the, for the moment. You attack this girl and then we'll give you some food and we'll, you know, we'll let you go home, etc. Which is totally untrue. It was never going to happen. And then eventually he did confess. But in fact, what happened, more my understanding is that because of his learning difficulties, they actually wrote the statement for him. Well, this was based on what they thought at the time literally within hours of the attack, what they thought had happened to this woman, that she had been attacked and basically sort of half undressed by Stephen or another, you know, decently assaulted and, you know, struck with this pickaxe handle. Now, they didn't really know an awful lot at that stage. And so they sort of concocted this uh, written statement for Stephen to, to sign. And, you know, he, he admits himself he didn't understand a lot of the, the phraseology, the wording of the statement, and was forced to sign this with the impression that if he did sign it then everything would be okay he could go that the victim would be okay hopefully tomorrow and would explain that it wasn't Stephen it was all a mistake so that was the premise that he, he, he signed this and the irony is that his confession didn't is that right marry up with the pathologist's report because he said that he struck her twice in the confession but in fact she sustained multiple blows in the head yeah well it was seven or eight multiple blows uh, as you say with a pickaxe handle which was found you know next to the victim and some of her clothes were scattered around on that period but i mean we later found out that the the woman had been attacked she'd been probably attacked from behind first and then undressed and there's a whole range of things that just didn't marry up in terms of what the statement said. Like you say, he was supposed to be admitted to two blows when it was seven or eight. There was no mention of, of attacking her with her, undressing her, etc. in that way. And what we found out later on as well, that the woman had been choked. She'd put up a fight. Uh, she'd got uh, bruises. And I think she'd broken her shoulder as well in the end. But there were a number of lacerations. There were a number of uh, bruises and blows to, to her body. 
and she was also choked possibly till she was unconscious and at the same time you know further hit with this pickaxe handle and i mean one of the main things i found out is that you know the forensics were a little bit ropey in those days but there was still nothing to to link stephen to the victim if he had attacked this woman as they claimed surely you know the pickaxe handle which was the main murder weapon it would well it was covered in blood and it would have you would have thought contained his fingerprints or palm prints or at least and there was nothing to connect him to it the only forensic that the police found was minute particles of blood on Stephen's top on, on his t-shirt mm -hmm. and it was so minute that the police had him in the in the room there for eight hours and didn't even notice the the blood spots it was only when they took the t-shirt off and and tested it under the microscope that they actually could find them so it wasn't that you know it wasn't it, it, the blood stain wasn't so bad that it was it was obvious and if you compare that with the ambulance man and the other policeman that were trying to help Wendy in a similar fashion they were covered in blood so you know the whole thing was strange but I mean there were so many things wrong with this it, it is impossible and the annoying thing really is that the the police always sort of said that this was a, a very uh, clean clear-cut attack it was one of Derbyshire's quickest convictions you know it was cut and dried within hours and yeah, I was going to ask you about that because my mm. understanding of the trial was that Stephen's trial lasted three days, but all the evidence was heard in one day. Yeah. Uh, and despite the fact that he had retracted the confession, that wasn't challenged in the trial, the fact that it, that it had been taken in an oppressive manner. And also the jury were only out for an hour before they came back and convicted. That's right. I mean, the defence was, well fairly appalling to be honest they missed so many things they didn't make much effort to look at many other factors that were that were involved there they just went really off off the off the police evidence and the pathologist the, the from the police he didn't even attend the scene of crime he did this on phone calls and, and correspondence between the police uh, and his department in Nottingham. And he was I think he was manipulated to a certain extent by what the police had thought had happened which was fairly slim and there was there was little no challenge about the, the discrepancies with the original confession and what we knew had happened in later time i mean obviously the defense barrister was no longer alive when i was involved with the investigation and that so we're working off various documents from before perhaps, and, perhaps don at this point it might be useful for people to be told a little bit about how you became involved in this case and why yeah. you became involved well, it was something I'd been at the Macleod Murky probably about 10 years before I knew anything about this case, really. This had happened in 1973. And in 1994, you know, Stephen was, was still in jail then. He'd been in jail over 20 years. The, the parents of Stephen, who still lived in Bay, who came to see me as the editor of the, the local newspaper, they'd had a phone call indicating that some new evidence may have come to light that could throw doubt on his conviction. And they thought a copy of the documentation had been sent to me, to the star. And I think I'd been on holiday that week before, and I'd, I'd only just sort of come back on that sort of Monday and was trying to pick up all, all the correspondence and, and what have you. And Stephen's father phoned me and asked if he could come in urgently to have a chat with him, mentioned about this new evidence. And I was asking around in the office to find out, you know, what this evidence may be or, or who was Stephen Downing, what the case was about, because it didn't ring a bell with me. It hadn't been, you know, hadn't been something that had registered with, with a lot of people at the time. Although my deputy editor, who'd been there a long time, did say, yes, he remembers Stephen's father campaigning for this, you know, 20 years before, etc. And there was always something a little bit iffy about the case. So that was all, all really I had to go on. His parents came in to see me that day and brought in an absolute ton of stuff with them, explained basically the, the out, you know, what had happened with, with the police procedures and things like that. And um, it just sort of wet my appetite a little bit to, to, to try and find out more. So it was just a period of time initially to look through some of the paperwork, ask around with my contacts and that, and trying to, just trying to give me a bit of a heads up as to what this was, this was all about. But there were so many fascinating things that if this was such a clear-cut case, I wanted to find out exactly what was this compelling evidence that, you know, sent a young lad 
a 17 year old lad basically gave him a, a life sentence you know but the more i made inquiries the more i was sort of blocked by the police in particular you know and they were saying everything's been burnt lost and destroyed you know there's nothing you can do now to look into this case you know and i was just you know purely wasting my time and the police became very hostile very aggressive very uncooperative and i presume I, I, with the journalists you'd worked with the police before yeah so first time they've been like that well, yeah, I mean, quite a few were the same contacts I, I dealt with sort of every day, really, every, every week. You know, myself or my con or my journalists would attend court and cover stuff there. The police would actually phone me off and tip me off about any sort of potentially juicy cases that might be coming through. And we had a, a very good dialogue. You know, one of the officers lived next door to me. And, and suddenly, you know, everybody was on a warning not to talk to me about anything. And, and particularly, you know, cut them off and mention anything to do about the, the Stephen Downing or the Wendy Sewell murder. It became, oh, well, it rang alarm bells with me, to be honest, because I, it, it sort of smacked of something that was a bit of a cover-up. You know, why didn't people want to talk about this? You know, if the lad was serving time, and many people said serving time for someone else, who was this someone else? And had a lot of these investigations been carried out at the time? I wanted to see, say, this, this compelling evidence that was so compelling it sent the lad to, to jail within a matter of hours. But the more I looked into it, the more, you know, questions came out. And I started to cover it in the local, in my local paper, and I sort of ran initial thing, you know, innocent or guilty, big headline, and mentioning some of the factors that I'd found in the initial uh, inquiry of my own. And I worked with the father and, and saw lots of the papers relating to uh, Stephen's case at the house. And he walked around the scene of crime, which was literally about 200 yards from where the Downing family lived. And so I started to build up a picture of, you know, what had actually happened that day and, and how and why Stephen had been, you know, taken into custody, etc. And it just didn't make sense. At all. And what's found out, whenever I put something in the paper, I got a tremendous amount of support and phone calls from people who said oh thank god you're looking into this you know that lad didn't do it he's been framed for it and they were giving me names of, of people that were potential witnesses that had not been interviewed by the police and lots of things that they should have done you know house to house inquiries weren't carried out proper forensic analysis wasn't carried out i mean they left an officer at the scene of crime on the day of the attack and lots of the clothing and and uh, so that the, the eventual murder weapon were left scattered there and the photographs were taken by the police of these in black and white not color for whatever reason they were taken in black and white this should have been a mistrial it should have been thrown out right from the early days because there was no way they could have found you know true forensic evidence against him or anybody else in for that matter i mean the officer that was there left there you know most of the night sort of thing he'd phoned up from the phone box to say look i've been here for hours you know i think have you forgotten about me what do you want me to do and they said yeah just bag everything up and bring it back to the barber shop and so we just the clothing and the murder weapon all sorts of things in a sack and took it back to the the police station so you've got cross-contamination of a yeah. whole range of things it is very shocking to hear like you said it was a long time ago but at the same time and and, and things like the police and criminal evidence act mm. didn't, wasn't around at that stage but at the same time, it was very early on and they didn't know exactly what had happened. They clearly were not careful with any of the evidence. And like you said, it was really impossible. It would have been impossible for anyone to have a fair trial in due course if they didn't actually make sure that evidence was properly protected. Yeah, yeah. I know that you had to speak and did speak to numerous witnesses. And I've read your book where you obviously don't reveal names but you call Mr Orange or Mr Red and, and so on how many people did you end up having to speak to and the police were, were didn't want me to look into this case at all as far as they were concerned and, and they this was Adam and mentioned several times that everything had been burnt lost and destroyed we, we've got nothing to show you anyway that was their attitude and I had well Two or three very good police contacts. I'm a runner, you know, still jog around and what have you. And at that time, I, I was quite keen running around the area. And I knew quite a few of the officers who were quite sporting. So we had a chat about things or we'd go and watch the football or whatever. And we kept a sort of a friendship going to a certain extent. And when they heard that their own officers were saying everything's been burnt, lost and destroyed, it was all clear cut, it was this, that and the other. 
they were saying that's not true. They're telling uh, some porkies here. The evidence is still there. The files are still there. A lot of the information is still there. Witness things. What do you want? And so I, I spoke to the these people individually. I didn't want them all sort of knowing who was in touch with me necessarily. So I don't think any of them knew that... Uh, <laughs> any of the others were sort of in contact with me or were supplying information but by these three or four different sources i was able to build up a picture of documentation that had supposedly been destroyed it was quite amazing that the amount of stuff i had and i even had a detective that was in charge of a reinvestigation of the case that i knew nothing about nobody else knew much about a few years later and he was in charge of the reinvestigation and came to see me in his office in a very cloak and dagger style and said to me that you know, Stephen is innocent. He has been framed for this. And he'd found a lot of statements from fellow officers that didn't exist or officers that did exist, but hadn't taken these statements. And, you know, they were clearly false information. I mean, some of the, or one of the statements in particular, interviewed two potential suspects here within about half an hour. He carried out two interviews, which were probably about eight miles apart, all done and dusted, both of them within half an hour which would have been impossible. And the name of the officer was clearly shown, you know, his name and rank and number and all the rest. When I contacted this officer, and I'm talking now, it's like 20 years after, he was amazed. He said he didn't know anything about that, but he certainly hadn't taken the statements. It wasn't him. And he was completely unaware that a statement had been taken and his name had been used. Wow. And the other thing that fascinates me, and it's actually really, it's hard to even put into words, but what this is like, but... The murder weapon. I got a call from a guy, a real yokel type, from he was, I think he was a deputy curator at the police museum in Derby. And he said, You know, are you looking for this murder weapon? I said, Well, yeah, I'm told it's been destroyed. He says, Oh, no, it's not. It's here. It's one of our prime exhibits in the police museum. You know, and it, it says wow. something like, How on earth would that happen? It seems, you know, to put it in a police museum, was it actually sort of curated and advertised as the murder weapon? Oh. Yeah, very much so. And it, it had, you know, Wendy Sewell murder in 1973 and, and something like, I uh, can't remember exact words, but, you know, Derbyshire Police, the quickest conviction or something like that, you know, for Stephen Downing. Well, that is this absolute and, shocking. I've done this job as a defence solicitor, well, for a long time now. And, and <laughs> it, yeah, I mean, as I said before, you can't in, even put into words... Well he, well, he said to me, he said, well, do you want to come down and pick it up? And I said, oh, no. I said, I, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to touch it or anything myself. I yeah, said, don't, don't tell anybody else that you've spoken to me about it because it will disappear. And I phoned up the, the solicitor at the time, John Atkins, and told him about it. He was absolutely staggered, as you were. And he, he said, right, well, leave it with me. We'll make arrangements. And, and they gradually got it uplifted. And this was then sent for you know, forensic testing. Uh, or retesting after all these years to see what was what. But, I mean, it's quite clear on the evidence regarding the original evidence on, on the pickaxe handle. They said it was absolutely smeared with blood, etc., from the victim. But Downing's, there was no link to Downing. There's, his, his, part, his fingerprints didn't appear. The other thing that they added, though, that we found out that was, again, hidden from the jury and hidden from the court is that Downing's fingerprints didn't appear on it, but a third person's did. And there was a clear palm print from another or third person there that, you know, obviously picked it up at some stage or, or was the actual assailant. And that was never introduced at, at the trial. Like you said, could be the palm print of the person who actually had killed Wendy or at the very least, Stephen's, you know, DNA wasn't on that weapon. That is pretty critical to his defence. Well, that's right. And, you know... I mean, what, what I was able to do in, eventually with this is to work with um, his legal team and say, right, uh, I mean, I, I spent, you know, two or three years really to put a complete investigation together. I was sort of almost playing detective, if you like, to, to re-look at the whole, the whole story. So, you know, I fully examined everything to do with the scene of crime, witnesses, you know, which witnesses had been interviewed. I went and re-interviewed most of these. They were still alive anyway. But we found probably about 18 other witnesses that had never been interviewed. Give, give us an idea of the sort of evidence that they gave you, or the information they gave you. Well, I mean, it's a whole range of things, but people had seen Stephen leaving the, the cemetery or the, you know, the, what was eventually seen the crime at the time he said he'd left and had seen Wendy still alive looking over the wall. 
of the cemetery. She was still walking around. And so they'd seen him leave and other witnesses had seen him come back, as he said, at that same time. And in between, he'd gone home and his mother had, had seen him. She'd come off the bus and, you know, she was arrived just before he came in the door. So there was no time that he could have done it after leaving or, you know, going back. And what we found with a lot of these witness statements, they, they had been taken by the police at the time, but with a view to really pinpointing Stephen must have done it, you know, before he committed before he went for his lunch. And then when I was able to present evidence quite clearly from all these other witnesses to say, you know, he'd left at one o'clock or just after one o'clock and didn't return till about 20 past one, then they were saying, well, he must have done it when he came back. And they were trying to sort of move the goalposts. And there was no way it could have happened then anyway, because, you know, I say other witnesses are crisscrossed. It was a quite a busy area for a sort of small community you know this the cemetery was sort of at the top of the hill but people were coming in backwards and forwards going to going to work and it's quite clear that several witnesses had actually lied about the time that they would they'd, they'd seen you know that they were going to work because when you compare them there's well I'll say half a dozen statements from different people but three in particular had obviously lied in the times that they were they were down now whether they've been manipulated to say a certain time, what I, I can't say because most of them weren't alive, but it's quite clear they should have been compared. And again, an analysis should have been made by the defence team and should have been challenged within the court to say, well, how and when did this attack happen? You know, and try and pinpoint it down to be uh, more precise. But, you know, you, you've got a guy, one of, the, one of the witnesses in the pub shortly after the attack saying that it was Wendy who had been attacked and she got head injuries. Now, how did he know? Now, he was blaming uh, another guy, a gardener, who was working in, in another part of the town, who said that he had been told by this one. And so when you look at both the statements, they're both saying that one, the other one told them about the attack on Wendy. Now, how did they know it was Wendy? How did they know it was head injuries if they weren't in the cemetery or they hadn't spoken or seen anybody else? But what they were seem to be clear of is that they saw Stephen leaving or that Wendy was still alive after he'd left. So they're all, you know, potentially key witnesses. But I think lots of things that came out of this is that as I was investigating all this, I was getting intimidation and harassment from the police all the way. I was also getting death threats from a another or a group of people that would, didn't want me to, to look into this case. And Again, it's encouraged more witnesses to come forward who said, well, they'd had the same problems years ago and even recently. When they were considering coming to tell me that they'd had you know, further threats and even Stephen's mother was beaten up on her own doorstep by people, you know, told to keep her mouth shut. But a key witness who almost lived opposite the murder scene, you know, she was saying to me at the time of the murder, her daughter and a young son were playing just on the edge of the cemetery and they said that the young son saw this sort of monster coming over the, the gravestones, which, you know, he's only a three or four year old, I think three, three or four year old. It would seem like a monster because it'd be Wendy covered in blood trying mm. to find some help and was staggering over these gravestones. So it must have been absolutely terrifying for these kids. Absolutely. And, and it must have been terrifying for you, for your colleagues and family, when you were getting death threats and this sort of level of intimidation. I mean, and did you think about giving up looking into this case at any stage? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's hard to sort of look back on it now, and uh, I'm not trying to be blasé with the whole thing. But I mean, I, I did explain some of these points to to my wife and family, and but you know, they were keen for me to keep at it, and we're all the same mind. Even you know, my colleagues in the office and people around town, if somebody's trying to threaten me, either by the police and you know, other people trying to stop me investigating it, why would they do it if the right man has been in jail? Yeah, and then they must have something to hide. Yeah. What's the problem with assisting you or encouraging you to look into the case? Well, so it, it gave me further encouragement to say, yeah, I've got to see it through. And I, after, after a period of time, I mean, it's a complex case to explain in a shortish period in a way, but what, what I was able to do, I gradually got a lot of information from the police, uh, my, my contacts in the police, and we had a system where they would leave documentation at certain points around the course that I used to run. And so they put a, you know, stone, they put information behind a stone wall and I get a, a call to say, you know, Chelsea or West Brom or something, it's like a football thing, you know, so I'd know who'd made the call and where yeah. the ticket would be. 
and I, I jog around and pick up then a number of, you know, other witness documents or, or documents that the police had said had been destroyed and here was copies of them. You know, later on, the police were, were threatening me with jail, you know, two years in jail or whatever for failing to reveal my sources. They knew that their office or some of their officers had been leaking information and they wanted to know who it was. And they said, well, we know who they are, but we want you to confirm it. And my attitude, well, if you know who they are, you don't need to ask me. And I said, well, if, if they want to come forward, that's fine. But I didn't push them. And I was quite happy that they were supplying me with information. But obviously senior officers weren't. And they they accused me of, you know, submitting false documents and all the rest. And which was totally untrue. The, these were you know genuine copy documents from police files. And coupled with other information I got from other sources, including there was a gentleman called Robert Irvin, who was an army investigator. And he actually worked on the case a few years after the murder for the Downing family as a sort of a, a private detective. And he found an awful lot of information. And when Ray, uh, Stephen's father, told me about his work on the case, I thought, well, there must be more information about than the information that Ray had, which was fairly limited. And so I set about trying to trace Robert Irvin, obviously died by then, and found his widow, and she put me on to one of his associates. And eventually I managed to find, a long-winded sort of story, but I had to find this contact who was an associate of uh, Rob's. And I managed to find an awful lot of documentation that had been tucked away for 20 years in this sideboard. And quite, quite a lot of that was absolutely crucial. And it found that, you know, Robert was, he more or less gained some success about five years after the case when it was reinvestigated. And this is when that other policeman tied him with the information that he had because he was the invest he was the officer in charge of it. And when I went back to them with information from Irvin's file, he admitted the, this officer that he was actually pinned against the wall by a senior superintendent and threatened with all sorts of things, really, thought he was going to get down and released. And it just showed the pressure that, you know, everybody was under at that time and since and he, you know, very nearly achieved an appeal based on information that other people had, had seen that the, the, the victim I say was still alive after you know a good 10 minutes or 15 minutes after Stephen had left now none of this really came out in the at the trial you see no that, that's years later I mean at some yeah. point Don you obviously met Stephen when he was in custody and obviously you had read information at that stage, certain evidence and spoken to people. What was your first impressions of Stephen? And did it just reconfirm what you were starting to believe that he was innocent? Yeah, I mean, it's not a, a quick process. Obviously, in all, in all the cases I've ever dealt with, you know, I go and see the, the prisoner. And I'd spoken to him on the phone several times and we, we'd corresponded several times. And he was actually down in Dorchester prison at the time when I first was, was dealing with this. And I went down to see him. He, well, he invited me, gave me a, a visiting order and I went down to see him. And I was able to put, I couldn't get a private one, so it was within a sort of a public area. But I was surrounded by about four wards who were listening to all sorts of, all the conversation, obviously reporting back to, to you know, senior parties. But I was able to put various things to him and really press him because I wanted to know and see, you know, sort of face to face his reaction when I put certain questions to him about the attack and what had happened since and the, the court actions and what have you. You know, within about an hour that we had, I was able to get quite a, a grasp of the whole thing. And I, I sort of carried on with that. Now, when I started to put documentation together to, with a view to a possible appeal, I got a tremendous amount of information, you know, by then. And then I found out that Downing had been moved to, to Dartmoor, which is a, a very old sort of, well, motto is a Napoleonic prison. Yeah. Um, and he was put on a wing with all the, as a classic, all the other troublemakers and told to basically, if you want to get this guy off your back, meaning me, just admit that you've done this. We'll get rid of him and you'll probably be out within six months because you've done 20 odd years now. You, you know, we'll, we'll back you on this and, and get you out in six months. You know, and he said, well, if I've done 20 odd years, I'm, I'm not going to admit to something I haven't done. I'm going to stick to my guns. You know, I didn't do it. And he was put in, in a cell window. You know, some of the windows were missing on the block. It was freezing cold in winter. He had to wear you know, all his clothing, his jumpers and his, his donkey jacket and what have you, just to keep warm. And he was put under constant pressure for a long period of time to just admit that he had done this and you know it was all nonsense and it took me a long time to fight this through I wrote to the Prime Minister the, the Home Secretary and various people to put pressure on my local MP 
and eventually, you know, we got him moved to to Little Hay in Cambridge, which is you know not not quite high security, but a medium uh, security prison there. And I was able to visit him and his family uh, more often, because you know when he was down in Dorchester and then in Dartmoor, it's very difficult for his parents in in Bakewell to go and visit him. And Absolutely, that's the sort you know. I don't know how long the journey would have been, but it's not a, a simple journey either to get to somewhere like that. No. Well, I found that when he was in Dorchester to start with, I and mean, he was there for a good few years, they used to make it as part of their annual holiday that they would go down and have a couple of weeks down there and visit him as, as often as they could during that period because it was so far away. But at least when it was at Cambridge, it was doable to, to go there and back in the day. It's about three hours each way, you know, then. And that's what I used to do as well. I used to go and visit him uh, quite regularly down there until the authorities stopped me from visiting. They refused to give me um, a visiting order. And when I went into the jail, into the prison one, one time, my photograph was actually on, on the wall with a few other journalists. And it was a notice, if this person reports here, phone this number immediately at home. You know, what were they expecting you to do, you know, in those visits, you know, to be sort of on the most wanted journalist list or something like that? <laughs> well, I mean, you weren't allowed to take anything in, no recording no. devices, no yeah. pants or anything, you know. So it was all cast of what you could remember. Yeah. But I don't know. I mean, I visited him that often. It just became a, a, a complete farce, really. No, I um, bet. And, and at some point, I know... You were, like you said, heavily involved in the investigation and working closely with his family and solicitors. But at some point, you were involved in the referral to the CCRC. Yeah, well, I battled away for uh, probably about three or four years anyway with the uh, original one, was a, I think it was called C3, which is the smallish mm -hmm. office that dealt with alleged miscarriages in those days at the Home Office. And that was a bit of a joke, really, because, you know, I, I, I think I travelled down there about three or four times, to, you know, on their request to put forward the case. So I had to produce a dossier with as much information as I can as to why you thought he was innocent. And so I did this, sent it down, and then I'd be again invited to say, well, if you want to come and, and talk this through, you know, uh, we'll make an appointment, etc. And I went down several times. And you're really confronted by three older ladies, if you like, you know, people in the sort of early 60s, uh, late 60s, that have been there uh, quite a while. And uh, the main lady was a very nice lady, a Welsh lady. And all she will want to talk about really is a, a retirement, a forthcoming retirement to Cardiff and what she intended to do. And the other two ladies would, would, would sit there knitting, you know, and <laughs> I thought, hang on a minute, I've come all this way, I've brought all this evidence with me and all this, you know, that had a week or two to, to look through it all. And then, you know, they turn around and say, well, I still can't understand, Mr. Dale, why you want to defend a murderer? You know, and, and it's obviously I haven't really looked at much of the information I'd actually supplied them. And I got, I think it was rejected four times overall by the Home Office and by various uh, ministers. And you could tell by the response they gave, quite a detailed response, but you could pick holes in every single response. You know, you get a three or four page document that was, you know, because of this, that and the other, all the rest, we're not going to consider anything further. And they'd obviously not looked at all the key points that I put forward. Well, I campaigned then to get another body involved with this, an independent body to, to, to look at miscarriage cases. And I wasn't saying everybody's in prison who claims they're innocent is, is a miscarriage. I was just saying there must be a certain percentage of them. And this, you know, Downing's case in particular, by that point, I was absolutely adamant that the information, the evidence I had was so compelling that if it went to the right person, they would have to agree that it, it, it demands an appeal. And so I was then invited by Tony Blair and one or two people in the, in the ministers who were looking to see how they could reorganise a, a sort of a miscarriage department, if you like. And this is where the CCRC came in. And I, I, was, written, I was written to by the ministers and said, right, you know, this may solve a lot of problems then with all, all you sort of do-gooders that think, you know, everybody's innocent. Here's a chance for you to present your evidence for Downing to, to this body. And it was set up in Birmingham. And I, I, I was quite... I suppose naive in a way. I thought, right, okay, well, this is a good chance now to represent the evidence to it. Go and see somebody, and and it'd be out in the twelve months or something, you know. And anyway, it was set up. I spoke to the, the one of the commissions that was going to take over this case, 
And then I got a call or a letter, I can't remember now, which just say, well, unfortunately, all the evidence that you've sent to the Home Office over the years, which is quite a massive box of files and things like that, has disappeared somewhere on the M1. And so we've got nothing to work on. I'm very sorry, but end of. Yeah, I, I was absolutely stunned. I thought, you know, somebody, is it April the 1st? Is somebody having a joke or what? You know, or, you know, four or five years' work here disappeared on the M1, you know. And I tried to find out, well, how did it, you know, how was it trans transported from one to another? Was it a secure unit? You know, oh, nobody got any information on it and it's all secret. We couldn't reveal it even if we had, you know, all this sort of thing. And so, anyway, I phoned up the commissioner. I said, well, okay, don't worry about that. I've actually got copies of everything. And what I'll do, I'll... um I'll bring it down to you. Oh, no, don't do that. Don't, no, just post it down and all this, you know, uh, send, send it by courier. And I said, no, I said, you know, accidents happen on the M1. I don't know. So I said, I'll, I'll bring this down myself. And I took all the boxes down of all the copies and everything I had and, and gave it to the, the officer in charge there. And we spent about an hour or so just talking it through at the at Birmingham. And then it was all accepted and signed off and, and whatever. And it was still about another 12 months or so before the, uh, commissioner looked through everything and came back to me and said, yeah, I think there is a case to answer here. And he set about a certain criteria of, of what else he might need uh, to, to before he could make any decision. I mean, one of the things, I mean, he worked with the, with the police who were adamant against me that it was all false and I was making up things and what have you. And so they, they did nothing but try and trash my my reputation and try and say everything I presented was, was false or I'd, I'd actually retype things on old police stationery and things. I mean, it was just absolutely ludicrous. They, they were threatening me with, with, with court action for that and for failing to reveal my sources because they were police officers. And I just said, well, you know, if that's what you want to do it, I can't, I, you know, it, it's abs you, you're going to come a cropper with it because it's not going to happen. Everything I've done has is, is been done, you know, to the book. It's all, it's down there. And many of the statements and things I'd taken from people, I'd, I'd actually recorded as well. So we've got transcripts, we've got recordings, we've got witness statements, we've got a whole range of things, plus these documents, a whole batch of documents that have been given to me by the police officers. So I was quite um, secure in, in saying, right, I believe everything I've got is is genuine. I've, I've certainly not forged or done anything improper. I, the, no, absolutely. Well, how, how can you know? Well, um, why would you? What would be the incentive? It's not like Stephen was a family member or friend or someone who no. knew before the parents approach you well that's it there's absolutely you know i wasn't getting paid for anything or anything you know there's absolutely no motive to do it no. so in in the end i mean they were adamant they're going to they're going to take me to court and all the rest and i said well okay it came to the stage well you've got to put up the names of your witnesses and i put down the name of the prime minister and the home secretary the justice <laughs> minister and various of as my witnesses and they said oh you know there's absolutely no way you can't do that these are people in authority i said well they're the only ones that can say whether the documents i've got you know, from basically your officers, is genuine or false. I've not written. These are copy documents that look authentic to me. They're either the other, you know, false or genuine. One or the other, it can't be both. And so in the end, the whole thing was dropped within about three days. No apologies or anything like that, um, because they knew that these officers or the, these uh, ministers would have to say, well, as far as we can tell, these documents are genuine. I mean, at some stage, Don, I know that they did refer to the uh, Court of Appeal mm. and I appreciate that at this point Stephen had he served something like 27 years in prison yeah that's right yeah and he obviously must have been extremely anxious and everyone involved probably was but what did the Court of Appeal find what did they decide I know his conviction was quashed but what was the reason for that well, they find that there was oppression in terms of the way he was questioned, that you know, he, was, he was shaking to keep him awake, his hair was pulled, he was forced into a confession that, it, as we say, it didn't match the facts. You know, even, even if he'd signed it, as he had, it didn't match the facts of the case. It wasn't, you know. And we also got forensic evidence, new forensic evidence, which completely uh, exonerated Stephen, that confirmed that the amount of blood staining to his T-shirt was so minute that it came from the fact that he, he disturbed this this young woman when he found her, and she's shaking the head and got minute blood spots on his his top, and so it everything con completely contradicted the original forensic evidence, uh, which I say was in my opinion was flawed anyway. Got a call first from the commissioner, 
to say that uh, there was a, a very strong likelihood of success because of the evidence we put forward, etc. Like that, and then we got a call from the our legal team say that uh, two officers had given evidence which in in support of of, of our appeal who were in, involved with the original case. We've got a detective who, who was involved with the reinvestigation and given evidence. So we've got three officers really involved with the case that had come on our side and admitted that they had pressured the uh, pressured Stephen. They had done various things. And I think, to be honest, I mean, it was a deal was done. There was, you know, nobody was going to be prosecuted or anything like this. It was all, all to be, you know, took. But I mean, there were so many things that should have been addressed in a sense, I would have liked to have had a, a proper appeal where the full evidence that we would found came out and it would have shown the police for what they were at the time and shown that it was a, a, a thoroughly disgraceful investigation that basically once they forced Stephen into a confession, the whole system was shut down and they didn't bother to look for anybody else. You know, there was a running man, there was other suspects that were identified in around the scene and a whole range of, you know, information we got from witness stage that would have put other people in the frame. All these were just, you know, very blatantly covered up. But there were so many associations, if you remember, in, a, in like a small community where everybody seems to know everybody else or, you know, the son of is a policeman or, or this, that and the other. It's very difficult to, you know, to look for somebody else. It was very convenient to, to frame Stephen for this. As he came from the wrong side of the tracks, he got some sort of, you know, mental health issues, he, he was classed as backward, etc. Who was going to defend somebody like him when, if this really came out and about the background of the victim, etc., a lot of people could have lost their jobs, they could have lost them, their marriages, a whole range of things, you know, and hopefully well, the right person, you know, I think is possibly still about or was certainly about even at the time Stephen came out of jail. I would advise, I'm not trying to just blog the book, but... For any potential students, I, I would recommend you know reading the book Murder in the Graveyard because it, it covers every aspect of the you know criminal justice system and even the fact that you know this case helped to change you know, British and European law, you know, with the Pro Board. I'd just like to take this opportunity to thank Don for opening up about what was clearly a very painful experience. Of course, if it hadn't been for Don, I just wonder where Stephen would be now. Would he still be stuck in some cell, serving time for a crime he didn't commit? It is frightening when you think about it. In the next two episodes, we focus on the largest scale UK miscarriage of justice, the post office scandal.